if you want to see the fullest form of indigenous Punjabi Christianity that you find in the Punjabi Psalms and there's nothing else. You are listening to Our Urban Voices with Dr. Alphonse Javed, a podcast that presents Christian narratives through diverse voices that impact urban ministry. Here is your host. Hello and welcome back to Our Urban Voices. I'm your host, Dr. Alphonse Javed. Today I'm joined by Yusuf Sadiq, a fellow Pakistani Christian. Longtime listeners will probably remember our South Asian episodes about cricket and uh, dance, including the Punjabi Bhangra. Today, we will be talking about the unique Pakistani Punjabi Christian perspective of the Psalms. Yusuf and I will be talking about his book, a pioneer work that uh, encompasses the cultural, social, historical, missional, and sociolinguistic uh, aspects of the Punjabi Psalmister. In case you don't know, Punjabi is one of a of a number of ethnicities and languages in Pakistan that extends across the border of to India. For the majority of uh, Christians in Pakistan that are Punjabi, singing the Psalms is uh, part of everyday life, and I'm excited to share their importance with you all, Dr. Sadiq earned his doctorate from London School of Theology, UK. He is the author of the contextualized Psalms, Punjabi Zabur, a precious heritage of the global Punjabi Christian community. He teaches at Wheaton College in Illinois and uh, enjoys uh, watching cricket. Thanks for joining us today, Yusuf. How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing good. Thank you so much for having me. Um, Absolutely. Let's start. I have not done this ever before, so I want to try. Um, okay, so now we got that out of the way. Now you know we are natives and we can speak the language. We're going to get into uh, basically what we did is just greeted each other. And I asked him, how is he doing? And he said, by the grace of Jesus, he is well. So now we're going to get into conversation. So before before we start, uh, let me ask you about your family. And this is not something I'm just doing with you. I do that with every guest I have. And the idea is very simple. I want my audience to know the guests personally. I want to build that connection. When they know you, they understand that you are a human, you are a real person who is doing some work. Sometimes that work is difficult work. So I, that, that's my reason why I do this. So share a little bit about your family before we get into the further conversation. Sure. I'm glad you asked about family. The family is very important, especially in South Asian context where we come from. So um, there's nothing better than starting with family. Um, I'm married to Ruth, my wife. She's also from Pakistan. And I have two daughters, Abigail and Ileana, ages eight and four. Um, yeah, and I'm enjoying um, being a dad and a husband. Um, and when we think about uh, family, it's just not the immediate family that often we think about. I think that's the difference uh, often in South Asian uh, cultures and Western cultures is family is uh, extended family is also part of, of your family. Mm-hmm. So in that regard, my siblings, my mom, all of them are in Pakistan. Yeah. 
Wow. So you are the only one who is here with your wife and children. Is that right? Correct. Wow. That that's that's uh, actually that's my story too. But uh, in my case, my wife is from here, mm-hmm. and uh, we did not meet uh, in a college. Often people talk about like, oh, I met her in college. Uh, no, we didn't. We met at a Christian camp, and I have four children. My daughters. I have two daughters too. Twin daughters. They are two but I have two boys too. My older boy is six and then four and then my girls. Uh, But you're right. um, Extended family is uh, incredibly important. It's a nuclear uh, family system. And uh, yes, everybody's there. Mom and dad come. They have their uh, uh, green car. So they come every year to just spend a little time with us. But otherwise, uh, that's that's the same story here too. Um, To start us off, can you... Tell us more about your journey from Pakistan to the United Kingdom to the U.S. and to writing the book. Sure. Um, so, yeah, I was born in um, Pakistan, Karachi, uh, the largest city in Pakistan. Um, pretty much like many of uh, the Pakistani Christians, uh, first in my family, like first generation going to school. Um, and uh, I always... Uh, was curious about like why we sing the Psalms in Punjabi. So, um, you know, I would go to church and what I listen to is the Psalms in Punjabi. Whenever there's a social uh, or cultural gathering of the believers, uh, what you hear is the Psalms in Punjabi. Uh, It was very common in my family and I'm sure uh, for many Pakistani Christian families as well, uh, to be listening to the Psalms in Punjabi um, before going to school or getting ready for work. It was like pretty much a part of, uh, of, um, of me. And I was very curious to know the history of the Psalms, like where do they come from? So in a way it was uh, an attempt to uh, find my own roots, like who I am as a Punjabi Christian and why Punjabi Psalms are so much crucial part of me. And this was this particular interest that took me to the UK at the London School of Theology uh, where did I, uh, I did my research uh, on the Psalms in Punjabi. And then uh, there was an opportunity to teach at Wheaton College, which then uh, took me to the United States. So that's briefly Pakistan, UK, US. Wow. So please tell us and our listeners what the Zabur is and share some, some thoughts about its history. Yeah, so... Um, uh, Zabur is an Arabic word. It is the same uh, word which is also used by uh, Muslims uh, all over the world uh, with reference to the Psalms of David. So Christians um, living as a religious minority in a Muslim-majority context also make use of the same term um, in, in reference to uh, the biblical Psalms uh, that, that we know. Um, so... I mean, in fact, we actually have two different words. Uh, the Catholic translation used the mezmor or mazamir, uh, which is more closely to the, uh, the Hebrew uh, transliteration. Whereas for the Protestant church, uh, the very common word uh, for the Psalms is the zabur. So zabur, when we say zabur, it's primarily the Psalms of David or the biblical Psalms that we are talking about. Yeah. Um, as I've mentioned briefly, um, that um, I was very curious to know my own roots, like who 
um, why Psalms make uh, so important uh, part of the Christian life in Pakistan. Um, I, I started digging into the history of the, uh, the Psalms and um, just uh, to answer like the history uh, briefly, um, they were primarily translated by the um, United Presbyterian uh, missionaries uh, in the region of Sialkot mm -hmm. in Pakistan, which uh, is also known as the hub of Christian missions uh, in South Asia, especially the, the Sialkot Convention and everything. Um, so this was uh, an attempt to meet the needs of uh, the local Christians. Uh, they were primarily, many were, uh, having no access to education, uh, their social and um, uh, cultural sort of setting was pretty much underprivileged. Um, so it was um, an attempt from the Western missionaries to uh, come up with something that will attract the um, the Christians, the local Christians, uh, especially in an oral culture. So what they found was that poetry was pretty much loved by these people, and they loved to sing in their own language and in their, uh, using their own musical systems. Um, however, uh, they started with the Urdu translation of the Psalms, which uh, interestingly uh, did not work really well. Hmm. Uh, they were like, they spent 10 years working on this particular project, but um, to the local Christians, uh, it was uh, not really embraced because it, they did not sing in uh, the Western style, uh, it was not their language. So um, for this particular Urdu translation of the Psalms, they used the Urdu language and uh, the Psalms were set to Western melodies. Uh, mm. So primarily did not work. Well, even to this day, I think if you ask many Pakistani Christians, if they have actually seen or have heard of the Urdu Zaburs, uh, many would say, well, we do not know. We only know the Punjabi Zaburs. And the reason was because it did not um, connect with the Punjabi Christians. And then after 10 years, uh, they translated the Psalms into Punjabi, which uh, uh, the, the difference was now they were using the mother tongue and they also were using the indigenous music, which really connected with the Punjabi Christians. And it was like, yes, this is how we sing. This is our language. It was not a foreign sort of thing uh, for mm -hmm. them. Um, so, for example, some writers uh, like Jeffrey Cox, he mentions that uh, if you if you want to see the fullest form of indigenous Punjabi Christianity that you find in the Punjabi Psalms and there is nothing else. So um, I would say it's, uh, yeah, it's for those reasons, the Psalms became uh, very popular. Um, they were accepted by the Punjabi Christians. Um, mm. Yeah, so it's like, Briefly, I can, I think we can go in more detail about the history, but it's a, it's a very brief uh, to say how we got the Psalms. This is interesting because my dad is a pastor back in Pakistan. Of course, uh, uh, we are Punjabi. I'm from Lahore, Punjab. Mm -hmm. So that's our mother tongue too. So um, never heard about it. So, and first, I'd never heard about Urdu. Uh, uh, I often actually wondered because I lived in Greece so I heard Greek song uh, songs, uh, English songs, American songs translated into Greek, but on the on uh, those that tune, even the the hymns we sing here in the United States. 
were sung over there. And even in Egypt, they were singing the same ones, but with the American tone that we have. And I, I always wonder why we don't, I, now, the first time I'm realizing that why not, because I was like, everywhere I go, I went, you know, in, in uh, um, you know, Albania, they were doing the same thing. In uh, Mongolia, they were doing the same thing. I'm, I'm hearing this everywhere. I was in uh, um, other Eastern European countries with different languages. They're using the same tone. Melody is same, uh, but yet uh, uh, we, we can recognize. But I always wonder why we don't have that in Pakistan. But now, first time I'm, uh, I became aware that, oh, it was done, but it didn't connect. Do you know any of the songs? I mean, any of the hymns in that melody personally? Uh, no, actually, if you look at the Sialkot Convention hymn book, Zabur Ki Kitab, there is some, I guess it's Psalm uh, 19 and 119. There are at least two Psalms in that book that are Urdu. And you wonder, like, what are these Urdu Psalms are doing in the list of all these Punjabi Zaburs? The reason is um, that one or two Psalms became probably popular or somehow they got placed. Um, and that is why they were included in the Punjabi Zaburs. But the uh, we have to understand the history, like, where do they come from? For, for example, I think the uh, it's the Fahamatakar Mujko Hodaya. So mm. that particular Zabur in uh, the hymn book is coming from these uh, Urdu psalms, but majority of the, uh, the psalms, I mean, people do not know, but at least one or two we know, and it's because they are coming from this early translation of the Urdu psalms. I personally have only seen um, Psalm uh, 101 to 150 of the Urdu uh, translation, and it's actually a, a sort of like very rare uh, sort of um, of materials you you wouldn't find it but i have seen some but uh um yeah i think to answer your question like why we see like in other places there is still pretty much the local language and the western melodies um and i think punjabi is the only example where we have and it's very unique um that uh, we have all 150 psalms divided into 400 and um 50 or so uh, different sections and um, every single of the section uh, or the psalm is not only in the Punjabi language but it also set to indigenous uh, local Indian ragas. And I think the reason is because Punjabis kind of like rejected this western form of Christianity whereas uh, the many other examples that you're saying for example the Korean church also make use a lot of these psalms and they also have 150 psalms in Korean language. But when they sing, um, the language is Korean, but the melodies are still Western. So mm -hmm. in that regard, Punjabi is very, very unique. That it's, it's the fullest, again, the fullest form of indigenous Christianity that you're going to find, it's through the Punjabi Zaburs. That's so incredible. So incredible. So is there any place, I know that I'm asking, I'm, I'm so interested now in this, I'm invested actually now. Uh, so. Is there any place that I can find the melody? I'm very interested in finding the melody for if there's anybody out there who has the melody. Um, for the Urdu? Yeah. Yeah, no, I don't think so because we don't use them in our churches. So apart from like one or two that, I, that uh, are in the hymn book, otherwise, um, I don't think so. Do, do you think it could have been the same as when we look at our 
hymnals, right? So I'm right here. I'm looking on the back. I got the hymnal right there. Uh, Western uh, melodies. Do you think it, it could have been the same thing that they they, they must have used the same um, melody that we have? Because I'm just, I'm trying to look at, okay, if every other country, every other language is using the same melody that we have here in the West, then it must have been the same melody in those. Uh, but yeah, I don't know yeah, because I there's think, nothing. I think for the Urdu Psalms, we, we could possibly say yes, mm. um, because here we are not uh, directly it's it's not the sort of like the purest form like the Punjabi Psalms here we are talking mm -hmm. about. The first project, I think, because uh, the focus is not necessarily indigenous music, therefore, I think we can easily assume that uh, because the focus is the Western melodies, so there must be uh, the concentration must be that we use the, the, the Western melodies. Now, um, I think some of the hymns that we sing in the churches in Pakistan, you can, you can just listening to the melodies can say, well, that doesn't sound like, like the the Indian raga sort of uh, melody. Mm -hmm. It's very Western. Um, so, yeah, I I would definitely agree to this that uh, the Urdu project would. Uh, must have used these Western melodies. Yeah, and I have one example, actually. I always thought about this when first time I heard. So my first experience with the Western Christianity was in Greece. Well, again, it was an American school too. And they, when they sung, uh, and here, you will hear that because I, uh, the audience, you will hear, you can recognize this tone. Jalal, Jalal, Hallelujah. Jalal, Jalal, Hallelujah. So when I first time heard that, that's like a Western melody and there's a Western song, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, hymn, and they just took that and turned it into that. I was like, oh, I can sing. And I was just singing. I didn't know the word in English at that time. So I just sung that. So I, we do have like these snippets that we can uh, kind of like put them together, whether that's uh, looking at the um, um, the overall linguistic behavior of yeah. different uh, um, hymns. Uh, you know, production in different countries and compare that with ours and say, well, it must have been that, even though we don't have literally anything. But then we see this kind of songs where we one or one or two of those things like, oh, we still have that here. Yeah. Um, that's so fascinating. I think so the only example that we can find in the Punjabi Psalms, like one of those examples would be uh, Psalm 95, Yehovah Rajab Karda Hai. And that tune is actually all Lang Syne mm -hmm. tune. Mm -hmm. So um, I was very, I think the first time I heard this tune was um, in, uh, in England. Um, I was attending like this British proms in the summer. And at the end of the proms, everybody stood and they started singing all Lang Syne. And I said to my friend, hey, they're singing my Punjabi Psalm 95, Yehovah Rajab Karda. He said, no, 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 no. This is very nationalist sort of a, a Scottish tune. So I was like, okay, now I, I realize because uh, part of the preparation of the Punjabi Psalms, the Scottish Presbyterians were also helping with that. Mm -hmm. So this is the only psalm, and they often say, if you want to experience Scotland in Pakistan, go to any Pakistani church, and you would hear this very um, national sort of Scottish tune, which is all Lang Syne. That must have been the one. I'm sorry. Forgive me. The one I sung, that's wrong. 
the one you are pointing, that's the right one. Okay, that's the one then. I, I, I'm, I'm so far away from my own culture, so I, I have not done those so long. But you're right, that was the one. Very rare example. I mean, it's a very rare example, but majority yeah, of you're right, that's the you example. Know, uh, these are like all Indian classical brothers. So yeah. So what is the Zabur significance in Punjabi church services, weddings, and funerals? Yeah, so um, if you notice, uh, I think one of the beauty of the Punjabi Psalms is that uh, these are not limited to one particular church or denomination. Mm. Uh, these are beyond denominational affiliations, these Punjabi Psalms. So you go to a Catholic church, what you sing is pretty much the Punjabi Psalms, apart from like Urdu hymns as well. You go to an Anglican church, you go to a Baptist church, you go to a, a Presbyterian church, you go to a Pentecostal church. All of these churches are making use of these psalms. So for us, these psalms are very important in our context because um, the idea of like uh, brotherhood and, um, you know, bringing us together as a very strong form of unity for us is the Punjabi psalm, number one. Um, the other thing is uh, our services often start with the singing of the Psalms. For example, Psalm 24, um, Rab Khudamun Badshah is often the first Psalm or Psalm uh, 1 to 2. Uh, when they say it unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Mm. So um, these are the, the Psalms like which helps kind of, you know, play a, a big role in the, um, uh, in, the, in the liturgy. Uh, if we have to look at them from that sense. Uh, often the closing psalm is Psalm 72. May his name remain forever. Uh, but that's the song for offering. That's when you collect that's also the offering. The offering. That's also the offering. Um, but often it could also be, but you see, like now you're saying that this particular psalm is for a particular purpose, right? Yeah. So it means that it plays a huge role in how you conduct your church services. And that's again, here we're talking about beyond denomination services, but well, it's good. You know, some people are late to church and they, they stand like outside the church boundary. As soon as they listen to like this Psalm, they know this is the offering Psalm. Maybe let's go to, uh, you know, in the church because it's the church, the service is about to finish. Um, mm -hmm. But it's, it's interesting, you know, like you realize immediately you said, well, that's the offering Psalm. And that is exactly what I'm trying to say, that it, it plays a huge role in our um, services. The other thing, uh, um, so when weddings happen, and especially for my own um, experience, for my own wedding, uh, you know, like you need uh, the musical band to, to play uh, the local folk tunes, as well as some like popular Bollywood uh, tunes uh, when people get married. So when I went to this uh, band, I it was a local, and I said, um, you know, they they soon found that I was Christian. So I said, are you Christian? I said, yeah. They said, do you want us to uh, play Rehika Nasadatika and Rakhudan Batshah, like Psalm 24 and Psalm 72? I was like, how do you know these Psalms? Uh, because my understanding is that you are not Christians, you're belonging to the majority, uh, you know, uh, community, you're Muslims. They say, yes, we are Muslims, but many of uh, the people uh, we try to um, play for are Christians because there are many Christians who live in the area. So for the sake of our, from like marketing business uh, sort of view, uh, we have actually learned many of the Psalms so that when Christians come to us, we can offer them because these Psalms are important to them. And that was very fascinating to know 
that here we are talking about musical groups, you know, people who are very much into local folk uh, sort of music in Pakistan, who also know these psalms and who also realize that how important these psalms are for the Christian community. So I have seen like, you know, some, uh, some Christian families might resist to the idea of uh, the Bollywood uh, melodies being played for their marriages. So they would say, well, now we have at least alternative. And the alternative is bring these people and they're going to play the Punjabi song on your wedding. And that's what happened on my wedding. So um, uh, to see that cultural use of the Psalms, which is now beyond the church boundaries is also very fascinating. A funerals, I think often, uh, if you have observed the funerals, uh, one of the Psalms that we sing in graveyards uh, as, as a form of uh, mourning is Psalm 20. Uh, May the Lord listen to you in times of trouble. Right? Mm. So um, I, I mean, we can think for several uh, uh, examples of Psalms that play a uh, role in our liturgy, in our when we get together in times of uh, happiness as a community, when we get together times of troubles and mourning and sadness, um, what really brings us together? Because if, if, if we have to look at it like from a denominational point of view, maybe you may be singing certain hymns in your denomination in Urdu, for example, that the other denomination may not necessarily know. They may not even know the tune, uh, but everybody knows the Psalms in Punjabi. And especially for uh, our older generations, um, you know, who have learned these psalms uh, right from the beginning and who may not necessarily have the opportunity to go to school. Um, so, again, I think as a community, this serves a, a bigger purpose that when we get together, uh, we know that all of us can sing the psalms and in our own language and in our own music. Yeah. I, I agree. And uh, I just uh, went through, I've, I've been praying for, this is a Lent season. So often, uh, you know, even though I'm not, I'm a Baptist preacher, so I'm not liturgical. This is not a liturgical church, but because I come from Pakistan, so uh, my family, they are Pentecostal. And uh, what they do is uh, during uh, this season, they have healthy understanding of fasting. So they fast. And I have this like habitual thing, but also a spiritual clarity on uh, uh, hymns. But during this time, for no reason, because I grew up in that culture, I sing. I was actually, I found myself uh, just recently uh, uh, singing Dukande uh, Wille the same way, because when my soul is in deep sorrow, it just comes out. Same thing, uh, uh, there was another, and now I can't recall, but certain hymns will come, up, uh, come back to my mind and I will just meditate on those uh, hymns. Uh, you were talking about Muslims being able to, especially musically talented uh, people are taking that, even though it's a marketing thing, but at the same time, they are caring to their audience uh, the way um, anyone would. And I, I understand uh, from my experience in Pakistan, many of the top albums, albums, Christian albums are sung by uh, many of the top uh, Muslim musicians and singers. But with that whole context, we can talk a little more about that. In Pakistan, we have another issue going on. Uh, we Christians deal with severe persecution and discrimination on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm -hmm. uh, so 
given the fact that we have Muslims who want to uh, be there for Christians and work with Christians and uh, there is a collaboration happening because it's still a community, right? But then yet we have this issue of persecution and discrimination on a day-to-day basis, often living in a ab- abject poverty. Mm-hmm. How does singing, that's my question, how does singing the whole canon of uh, Psalms, including the imprecatory Psalms that ask for revenge or justice being comfort and hope? Mm. Yeah, I think that's a very important question. Because I, 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 well, you asked, especially in the context of uh, Christians and Muslims in Pakistan, but in my own observation, even the church is also struggling with these imprecatory psalms because, like, how do we make sense of this? Um, the psalm uh, where the psalmist is talking about the revenge, the revenge against the children of your enemies, uh, you know, is, is asking God to, um, you know, to kill uh, the uh, my enemies and so on. Um, and... I think this uh, this probably is not necessarily the case uh, for uh, the church in Pakistan when they sing these imprecatory psalms. Um, and I would say that, um, you know, it's more of like the exegetical uh, matter rather than taking, taking it like on a literal uh, sort of understanding uh, who these enemies are that the psalmist is talking about. I mean, it's not necessarily in the physical form, like it's these humans who are enemies, um, but it's likely uh, that in many of these contexts, it's just looking at these enemies like in the spiritual realms, that these are the enemies who are going against them, uh, against the uh, the people of God. Um, so in Preachery Psalms, we still make a lot, uh, you know, sing a lot of uh, in Preachery Psalms, um, because um, you know, we also have to understand that uh, it was not necessarily the church who started learning these psalms. Um, they were not being taught about the, the meaning first, but actually they learned uh, the, the memorization uh, part happened before. Um, so um, yeah, we do have these psalms that are pretty much used. Um, and I would say that believers often do not look at those who persecute them as their enemies in that context, but it's these enemies are in the uh, spiritual sense, I would say. But um, regardless of that, I would say that all Christians, no matter where they are, in precarious psalms um, is not an easy one to uh, to do with. Yeah, I, I agree. I think uh, I never thought this way before. Uh, in my mind, because the persecution is so real, you don't you're not asking for maybe as part of uh, being Christian in that context, you are not looking for revenge or for, uh, justice. You're rather looking for comfort and relief. Uh, right. You focus on God, get me through this. God, get me through this painful situation. Um, it's not like okay, um, hit my enemies really hard so they never come back. It's more of uh, give me enough strength to get through today so I can be, uh, you know, alive tomorrow. Right. Um, right. I, I agree. You, 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 I never thought this way again before, because when I look at Psalms, often I go to Psalms, even here in the United States, it's not different. Anytime I am uh, dealing with the um, um, 
you know, fear or I'm dealing with the pain or uh, um, dealing with stress or depressive thoughts or those kind of things, it's, uh, uh, it's, it brings relief. I, every time I talk, I would counsel people. That's what I do. I tell, okay, look through the uh, Psalms, read through the Psalms. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's an interesting thought um, that why we don't, even though we see David doing it, he will ask God uh, to take his enemies out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we don't. Um, so since you are a theologian, I'm, I'm going to get off this Psalms uh, conversation and just ask you, why not? Why don't we do that? Why don't we ask God to do that? Why? No, I think we are uh, ambassadors of peace, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, like revenge and um, hatred is is not, uh, you know, what is our, our calling or mandate as Christians. We are to uh, look for reconciliation, love, peace. This is our calling. Um, so again, I, I agree with you that uh, many Christians would, would definitely raise this question, even in the West, is like, what is the purpose of this impurity response? But I think I, I, I agree with you that this is to help us process, you know, the, the situation that you're going to, uh, through, as well as to, um, uh, yeah, look at, like, I think, Primarily what the psalmist is doing is he is inviting God, urging God to take some sort of like action. Um, but it's is his own, like this is his whole intention is not really the enemies. It's actually the urging God um, to do something about the situation. Again, great point. You're right. And now I'm reflecting on because my church was, my dad's church was at, under attack constantly. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, I remember doing the same thing where we will, uh, you know, use hymns that talk about uh, rise up, God, um, you know, defend me, those kind of thing. But defend me not in like a sense that now there's going to be, uh, you know, somehow angels going to show up and start hitting people. But it was more of like God can, you know, as the scripture teaches, they can come through one way, one way to attack you, but they will disperse in seven different ways. Uh, uh, so that kind of idea was always, always uh, uh, part of my, uh, you know, my upbringing that you just cause God plead to him to mm-hmm. rise up, stand up, take a stand. Uh, but at the same time, it's also deal with my grief. Um, it's an uh, intro Inspection, while at the same time uh, leaning on God for His uh, um, His justice, but not justice as go kill them, but justice as like mm-hmm. bring restoration, bring uh, what I, I don't even know what what I was asking for. Now I'm reflecting on this. Yes, I think it, the reason is as you said, uh, we are ambassador of peace. Deep down, we are ambassador of peace. We'd rather give our lives than. Uh, have God take somebody's life or uh, God forbid uh, dare to take somebody's life because we think that's a godly thing to do. Um, so you're right. Uh, it's, it comes from there. Um, one of the things that you have written about is how the Psalms could be a bridge between Muslims and Christians. So we're yeah. talking about persecution. We're talking about real yeah. discrimination. Would you elaborate on that? Yeah, I, I briefly touched on this point. And again, I think anything we do because we live in Muslim majority context, you always want to think about like how the church engages with the majority community. Um, 
And here primarily I was looking at this, um, uh, the reality of the oral culture, the love for poetry, the love for poetry in the mother tongue. And then um, this um, material of um, uh, the mystic or the Sufi, um, um, Sufi side, um, which is in the Punjabi language, which is also in poetic form. Um, so here I was like trying to look at uh, some of the ideas. So for example, uh, some of the Punjabi uh, poets or Sufis would look at this idea of tasting God. Okay? So tasting God. So when you like, when you think of tasting God, you also look at the Psalms. Well, ta Psalms talks about, you know, tasting God, taste and see that the Lord is good. Mm. So this idea of like taste, tasting God. And again, this, this idea that uh, you, uh, you need to have the, like, uh, you have to try for yourself in order to see. You don't rely on somebody else to help you taste God. You have to taste God for yourself. Um, so some of these ideas that I found in some of these Punjabi Sufi poetry, I was like, have they actually read the Psalms? You know, that was like my first uh, impression. How are they coming up with such ideas that are we actually find in the Psalms? Um, so my interest was to see that cultural uh, availability of that material, which also um, kind of like points to these mystic ideas, which we find in the Psalms um, in order to look at, well, there is some similarity, there is some sort of bridge building that possibly could happen because Psalms are poetry. And for example, you know, Bulesha or other uh, people's poetry is also uh, in the Punjabi language. And if they are, if they're touching on some of these ideas, which the Psalmist is doing, then I think we definitely have a clear uh, opportunity to engage with the wider community using this like cultural similarity and significance of poetry and language. That's incredible. Um, and I, I see that now. I can I can see that, especially when you go to the uh, Data Darbar or any of those places, those kawals are sitting there. They are, what they are doing is they are taking the word. Some of these, by the way, uh, I don't know how many Muslims uh, know this, but some of these, uh, uh, these portraits of Sufi Kalam is mm -hmm. coming from people who lived really bad life. They were not like... Uh, uh, it seems like that they oh they must have been like right there up with God and a lot of time they are using that kalam or that uh, description to talk about their lost love because they didn't get the uh, girl they wanted now they are falling in the you know they are in pain so they are crying out before God that I'm in pain and there there's this you can even see that in some of those uh, uh, kalams they will they will show that my love for my darling is as if your love for me and. How can I worship you? Like, like those kind of like crazy ideas, but it becomes, but such a beautiful, it exalts the love, human love. But the idea over there is like, I am in pain, but I want to focus on your love. Um, it's amazing. Mm -hmm. Amazing. One of my, um, uh, so I don't know if it's a Punjabi hymn or I don't know how I came across, but many years ago, um, many, many years ago, my older brother, who's a pastor in Pakistan, and he's a he he sings with uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Majid Masi. Mm -hmm. He is a Pakistani Punjabi um, um, gospel singer, basically from the old days. 
and he's a, he works with him. He's his disciple and all that. So he used went to OM um, uh, Operation Mobilization trip to Murray, and he came back with this gift from the Lord. Before, he was not able to play any instrument, and suddenly he was able to play. And the song he brought back became kind of like my song for the rest of my life. And, and I, as we were talking, it came to my mind, and I wonder if you know this, I don't know where it comes from, but that often, whenever I'm in trouble here, even, and I don't, uh, before my this, um, where I am now, uh, Central New Jersey, Matachan. I was in New York. Uh, I moved here um, two years, a year and a half ago um, from New York. And over there, uh, my my church was predominantly white church. So I had no Punjabi or um, um, Urdu speaking person around me. But yet this will come to me. I don't know why. I will just sing that. Um, what does it mean to say that the Psalms are contextualized. Would contextualizing the epistle look different from that? Yeah, um, I think when we say contextualization, it uh, the word is the big word is context, your own setting. Um, and this word we could use it in like different sense. Uh, often uh, in Bible translation, for example, you know, often you hear the term contextualization. It's like how the text kind of like make. Um, sense to the people in their own language and culture. So mm. what you're trying to do is that, uh, of course, the text is written in a different context, right? And there's a time period also like long time ago, this has been written. So um, the idea is like how you, um, how you can break those sort of like barriers. So uh, the word communicates to the, uh, minds and hearts of the people who are listening to it. And you're, you're doing all this because um, you want to convey or communicate the message um, to, uh, to, to the best uh, that you could possibly do. So that again, the idea is that it connects with the people. So um, that's what we mean when we say like contextualization of the Psalms is that here we are talking about language. So let's think about like, you know, if you give, uh, the text or the Psalms in a language which is foreign to people, um, which they may like struggle to understand. And again, we are trying to overcome hurdles as much as possible. So language is, uh, of course, number one thing that we think about. Um, again, for the Psalms, we are thinking about the, uh, the local melodies. Again, we are trying to eliminate anything which is foreign, which is strange. I think the more we... Um, uh, if we are going to bring in many of these hurdles, then our, our brains are going to get this pressure, like they're not going to process easily. So we are trying to eliminate those things so that our brain could easily um, understand and um, you know, easily, easily process those things. Um, and so language, indigenous music, I would say, uh, and even the terms and idioms and phrases that have been used in the Psalms are pretty much in the local setting. So that is what we mean by contextualization. Of course, I mean, one example that comes to mind, and this is not necessarily uh, the Psalms, but in South Asian context, for example, Sadhu Sundar Singh, mm. 
um, he's converted through uh, the ministry of, um, of the uh, Western missionaries, but his approach to evangelism was very different. He believes, so his, his famous saying is that um, India is not Christian because Indians have not been given the gospel in an Indian bowl, but they have been given uh, Christianity in a Western cup. That is why our people do not recognize it. So again, uh, it's like, how are people going to recognize like what, who is Christ and what is Christianity? Um, so that's, that's an example of what, what we mean when we say contextualization is like presenting things to people that connects with their hearts and with their minds and you remove every element which is foreign uh, in the process. Um, so that's contextualization of the Psalms, but you, your question is uh, how like would the contextualization of epistles, would they look like different? Right. Um, they, they may look different. I think one um, big example, uh, the difference is the poetic form. The Psalms are in poetic form, so they really fits in an oral culture where people love and sing. Um, epistle may also be done in a similar manner. So for example, um, I know um, um, Joshua Fuzzle Dean uh, was a scholar who translated the gospel in poetic form. In fact, he attempted to um, translate the entire New Testament in poetic form. And the reason because, again, you can read the scripture, uh, but in a culture where there's so much love for poetry, you would see that people want to memorize and recite the poetry. Um, so I guess like the epistle could also work really well. Entire, like any part of the scripture in poetic form um, can be very effective in oral cultures. Um, but yeah, you have to see, I mean, like it depends on what context we are talking about. If anything culturally, um, um, if it really connects with people, I think that should be the approach. So uh, that would that might look like the contextualization different depending on different contexts, but um, I think for anything like this, um, every effort should be made to um, ease the process so that scripture, so the text could connect easily with the people and they can realize it like, yeah, this is my life experience. This actually connects with me because my it, it matches with my surrounding. I can understand it um, in, a, in a better way. So, like overall, that's what we we mean when we say contextualization. Yeah, and I think that might have been the reason why we have uh, a Quran in uh, Arabic, and it's easy to you know even people if they're not able to know what it says and what it is, even in Urdu language. I mean, Urdu speaking people or Bengali speaking people, Muslims, Indonesian speaking uh, communities, they don't understand, but they can recite the recite recitation. Uh, is because it's rhythmic and uh, same thing with Hebrews. They do the same thing. They recite. Uh, perhaps that's the big, um, I would say, uh, disadvantage of uh, letting go of the oral culture and not having those things, the New Testament in um, in rhythmic style for at least for cultures like Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, or places that still love the poetry and uh, yep. Malady. I think you um, you touched on a very important area, which um, I'm, I always am like 
really interested in, and that is the significance of the original languages in our mm -hmm. context. So, um, I mean, all of these examples that you give of Arabic is because it's uh, the foremost thing is the significance of the original languages, much more important than the local languages. Sure. Uh, in our context, especially like South Asian context, you look at like um, Hinduism and often it's uh, the significance of uh, Sanskrit is much more important than any local language that you may be speaking. In the same way for Gurmukhi, uh, Punjabi for the Sikhs is significant, um, no matter as a Sikh, of course, you speak Punjabi, but even if you're taught, you know, speaking any other language, there is no comparison uh, with the with the language, which is the language of the text. And um, at least I think for the Christian church, uh, the, the good thing is that we are not bound to be mm -hmm. reciting uh, the Christian scripture yeah. in like, you know, uh, Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic. But um, sometimes I think, especially uh, for us, like as South Asian Christians, we, it's, it's, we should not be taking this like for granted. Mm -hmm. In our context, if we see that the uh, the original languages are so important, I think as a Christian church in South Asia, this is one of our big need is also to engage with the community, the larger community through the original languages. So like if you recite something from the Quran as a Muslim, you know, and when you translate it to me and you say, this is what it say, I got to trust you because you're using a language which is completely sacred and you are using a language, and sometimes it's also psychological, especially in South Asian context. If you talk to me and I struggle to understand what you're trying to say, I would, I would really want to give attention to you because it's beyond my, uh, my understanding. So often this also works, especially with, you know, it makes like everything authentic because you're using a particular language which has this understanding of revealed or inspired. And I think if I say something in Hebrew or Greek to uh, in that context and then translate into Urdu or local language, like this is what Jesus said, I think in the ears of the listener is like, well, I got to be very serious here because this person is using the real words of Jesus that he actually said. Now, it doesn't matter if he or she understands, but you would see the level of interest and the level of attention is totally different because mm -hmm. now you are engaging with this sacred text and that is important. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I, you know, I'm thinking about this, even in my uh, teaching, uh, I, I have a deep love for Greek, uh, mm -hmm. obviously, because I live there. So that's one, one of the top reasons. I don't use much Hebrew, but, and usually because I'm going through since, I've been teaching here regularly. I've been going through letters, so I don't have much need of Hebrew. Um, but you're right. Even when I use that, the hearer, even, even here in the United States, I see the expression. And then I learn so much too, because I did not know that until I um, look at the original language and the syntax and the, the grammar structure and all that. I was like, oh, that's amazing, because uh, translation failed to bring this together, because they can't translate one word they need a description and they can't just go outside of like certain amount of words but at the same time you you're right it does bring some seriousness to text but here's what i also appreciate that it brings desire in uh in the audience's heart to learn a language the reason why i had the desire to learn a language because uh, my mentor was greek 
and he will speak, uh, he will just quote certain texts and tell me like, no, 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 you're, that's wrong. That's not supposed to be this, supposed to be this. I was like, oh, I want to learn mm-hmm. Greek now right. because there's a, it's much, uh, it's, it's a much deeper. It has more rich flavor to it. Um, so I agree. I hope and pray that, you know, people like you and me who have been blessed to be in uh, schools here and are in academia and able to see this need somehow influence our pastors in Pakistan who are often more interested in uh, something else than learning and uh, investing time in uh, uh, learning languages. Sure. And even... Yeah, generally, um, just the Bible education, we right. lack that too. Yeah, and taking off from there, um, I am currently working on uh, a selection of the Punjabi Zaburs and comparing them uh, with the text of the uh, Biblical Hebrew Psalms cool. and seeing that how idioms and phrases um, and metaphors from the Hebrew were translated into Punjabi. And that is just an exercise to encourage young Pakistani Christians, uh, that there is a a whole scope of scholarship and research in this area where we can, I mean, one thing that this would do is, um, as you had said, like this is going to create an interest among uh, the young Pakistani Christians is, okay, because text is important in our context, here is an example of how we can engage with the text. And the other thing is, of course, you know, this accusation of the text has been corrupted, the Christian has been, the text has been changed and so on. This exercise will also encourage us to think at like, you know, uh, to, to what extent this is just the, to present to the wider community, to the majority community, that now here we are uh, dealing with the text and see how faithful transmission of the text has been. Right. And here we are taking the Punjabi Psalms as an example. So, um, I'm, I'm currently working on this, um, and I think but maybe at another time we may be having a different conversation about the linguistic analysis uh, of the Punjabi Psalms from uh, the principles of translation. That's excellent, man. That's awesome. That's, that's the, I think that's what uh, this generation needs to do to help uh, the generation that was before us, my dad. I mean, he went to Gujramwala Bible College, and in those days, you got one year uh, of Bible college, and you work with a senior pastor for, you know, seven, eight years, and then you become a pastor. Now, it's so terrible. Um, In my recent uh, encounters, everybody, even like, uh, I got this email from Brooklyn Tabernacle um, in New York, a good friend of mine. He sent an email. He said, hey, such and such a person is a pastor, and they're looking for support. I was like, oh, and this was a kid. A kid is uh, uh, not even high school yet. I think he was like a Pakistani high school. Mm-hmm. Um, he was, I think, eighth grade or something. And he, he is a pastor and he got uh, a bunch of children with him. And he is like, oh, uh, so-and-so director of this and this. And it's like, what in the world are we going to expand the gospel and train our people? I'm, I'm all for excitement and I'm all for like evangelistic work, but if you have no knowledge, you have not been gotten like sec. Forget about the Bible knowledge. I'm talking like you are not even knowledgeable of the world. How you are going to deal with the bigger issues of the Bible? I think it's a whole conversation that needs to be sure. taking place. So I agree with you, brother. God bless you. But another topic you let me take you to that one. Another topic you have written about in is the 
is the South Asian perspective of uh, Jesus's encounter with the woman at the well. Would you share a bit about the perspective? So our primarily, our uh, primarily American audience could hear about that. Sure. Um, yeah, so I, um, I wrote this article for um, the, uh, the Missiology um, Journal. And um, I think it's very normal for us um, when we are reading the Bible, um, you know, our, our upbringing, our experiences, our backgrounds, they kind of like shape our um, understanding of the text because we are, we are often trying to relate the text to like how it relates to my experience, okay, how it, what it means to me, how is it how the text is speaking to me. So um, I, I tried to, when I read the story in the Gospel of John chapter four, I was like, okay, I want to put this story in the context of like South Asian strict, for example, like tribal cultural setting. And I'm just like envisioning in this sort of context, knowing like, you know, karokari sort of practice, mm -hmm. uh, the honor killing sort of thing. And many of these uh, killings happen because there is that um, gender dynamics. Um, so opposite, like how you are dealing or how you are communicating or interacting with the opposite gender in South Asian context. So I was like, okay, if this is in a strict sort of like tribal South Asian setting and Jesus is um, engaging with this woman and he's, he's, he's talking to her, um, that could have like um, many serious uh, sort of outcomes because in a, in a shame honor culture, uh, you have to be very, very careful how you interact with a woman that you do not know who is a stranger. You know, and as as a, as a as a man, there are kind of like cultural lines, uh, what you uh, what you can and what you cannot, and um, and those those could be like serious lines. Um, and I think the disciples uh, realized this, you know, in a in a in a Jewish cultural setting of the first um, century. Uh, I think they they knew that this was strange. One. That Jesus is talking to a Samaritan, but well, that's uh, everybody knows. But I think it's more that they were also very surprised that Jesus was talking to a woman, because in the first century, uh, any rabbi would never ever talk to a woman in public. That was rule. So now they're they're looking at Jesus as rabbi, who is now kind of like breaking his own rule as a rabbi. In the first century um, Judaism, a rabbi would not even talk to his wife even if he sees her in the marketplace, you know, they were just passed by as strangers. And which I think even like, you know, growing up in South Asia, we, I, I have like experienced some of that. If I've seen like, you know, some, uh, some of my cousins, especially young uh, female cousins, if I see them like in the marketplace, I do not necessarily stop to say them hello, you know, just because how there are so many people around who are looking and they may be like thinking of all sorts of things, like why, you know, who is she? And uh, we know this guy and what is their relationship and so on. You wait till they get to your home and then you talk to them. So in the same manner, uh, I was like, you know, okay, geez, what is Jesus doing here? Um, and then I kind of like started thinking of um, possible outcomes, you know, like punishments for um, uh, possibly engaging with the opposite gender in shame-based culture. Um, you know, Jesus could have been like stoned to death. This woman could have been stoned to death. 
Jesus is risking actually his life again in South Asian context. There could be like he could he could be beaten by the village community, like you know our honor. This woman is carrying our honor as a community, and you are ruining this honor. Uh, of ours uh, by, uh, you know, as a stranger man who is coming in and engaging, and this is our territories. And so there are, I mean, uh, I mean, you know what I'm talking about. So there could be like many consequences for Jesus in South Asian context. This story could be like uh, many, many risks that a man is willing to take. But here we know that, you know, this, this reaching out to this woman is very important. Jesus is compassionate. He wants her to know the true Messiah, so he's he's willing, but it it makes perfect sense that you know disciples are like we don't know what this rabbi of ours is doing. Yeah, yeah. you know what I like about that story is also the idea that it said I must go mm -hmm. uh, to Samaria. Why? Because he has to. There is no other option for him. He has to break this, um, you know, cultural issue or a cultural uh, huddle. And, I, and you were talking about your cousin. I, I'm telling you, I have two sisters and it was the same thing. When we are in the marketplace, I will not even talk to my own sister. Right. Uh, we, our faces are very, yeah. you don't smile, your face is strong because right. uh, if anything, I look like a Pakistani Punjabi police officer yeah. who's like, <laughs> just like has this face. Yeah. Um, and I understand what, what you're saying and, and, and let alone talk to a woman who I have no connection with. And then third category, a woman of a particular reputation. That's even worse. I often think about in Lahore, we have this area called, uh, it's in English, that would be Red District, right? Yeah. Uh, by Data Darbar. Just to go in that area or think about, because every time we needed a musical instrument, tabla or dolak, we go there because they make, they're really good. They're experts. So they make it. But going in that area mm -hmm. is just such a, huge taboo and to me that would be jesus entering in that street and not right. only entering going up in one of those houses and ask like can i have a, a cup of water what are you doing here right. you see that's like that kind of like yeah. interesting um, uh, thoughts that's amazing um as uh, uh we come to you know i, I want to start closing this time together it's, it's fascinating i'm just so so excited. What is the church in America missing or doesn't get when it comes to how the Psalms can be incorporated into everyday life? Yeah, I think um, if I have to take like, think of one thing, um, that'd be how to process grief and suffering, I would mm. say. Um, you know, some, sometimes I have heard this phrase from my American friends is like, hey, you guys know how to process grief and pain and suffering. And, and, and there are, uh, these are the things that we could actually learn from you. And I, I think the, the Psalms actually help us with that process of going through. So um, there is a saying that the, uh, the rest of the Bible, uh, God is speaking to us. In the Psalms, we speak to God. So this is a way of expression. We are expressing our weaknesses, our pain, our sufferings. Um, so definitely, I think the Psalms you know, help us to, to go through that. And uh, that's probably one thing that I could think of that um, the church in America is missing. Wow. 
I, yeah, I thought the other way around. I thought, I thought the America, American um, understanding, especially when it comes to like counseling, to me, that was like uh, brilliant. You know, those uh, steps that you have to go through, you know, acknowledging and uh, going through. But you, you, that that is a good perspective. I think that's how I dealt. Because when I think about Pakistan, no Christian, at least when I lived there, I never heard anybody taking their life because uh, of depression. Not that they are not depressed, not that they are not going through suffering. Mm -hmm. I actually saw people fighting for life, not taking their own life, but fighting for it, even yeah. with their meager um, resources, they were able to somehow do that. So now I'm thinking about and connecting that. And I'm not talking about Muslim community, I'm talking about Christians how Christians deal with the grief. And sometimes it seems like all they got is grief and pain and suffering. Sure. Wow. On the flip side, how could singing the Psalms encourage other persecuted believers if they do not have the heritage of uh, the Psalmist in the same way? Yeah. Um, I, I, well, these days I'm teaching a course on the global Christian persecution. And what I also see is Pretty much, uh, it's the um, 1040 sort of window we are talking about. And many of these contexts are actually uh, pretty much like all cultures where there's so much of love and of love for poetry and so on. Um, and I, I, yeah, I think scripture is the first place where you go, you know, when you're going through persecution. But I also realize that especially when you think about the persecuted churches that there's a there's a lack of material resources to help us go through like the, this process of persecution. Uh, there's a lack of like such materials. Um, so for uh, the church elsewhere, I would say, you know, if if whatever fits with their context, if they are much into Psalms, then go for Psalms, you know, Psalms. But if there are other uh, parts of the scripture that, you know, they're more familiar with that brings them peace and courage and uh, comfort and peace, um, go to the scripture, like in the first place. So, yeah, that would be, that would, what I think, for the else, elsewhere, for the persecution. Maybe we can also sprinkle some of the counseling, uh, Christian counseling, especially, because I do see the benefit of Christian counseling, which uh, especially, you know, not only suffering and pain, but also, you know, dealing with marriage and morality and uh, all those things too. Uh, Sometimes I think the marriages that I have seen in Pakistan are, they are there because they're never going to leave because culture enforces that. But at the same time, it's just damaging. You can see that, the, those things. Uh, before we close out today's episode, is there anything else you would like to add? No, I uh, just want to say that I'm passionate about this thing. Um, this work has really helped me to feel good about um, who I am. And I'm, I'm proud of my, uh, you know, being a Punjabi Christian. And I'm proud of um, all, uh, you know, the, the generations who have uh, memorized these Psalms and who have brought to us, uh, you know, and... Um, this is going from generation to generation. It's, it's a beautiful heritage that we have. So, yeah, I think we, we need to um, show more love and passion for uh, this heritage because it's our heritage. You know, I was in um, uh, Maryland um, uh, this year, 
and there was a Christian convention happening. And some of these uh, young uh, Pakistani Christians who were born in America and who, who keep uh, hearing their uh, grandparents sing these Punjabi Psalms or their parents sing these Punjabi Psalms. And uh, when I went through like in detail about what these Psalms are and so on, some of these young people came to me, they said, hey, you know, for the first time you actually connected us to our roots and they've never been to Pakistan, but this is their home, right? Their home environment is pretty much Punjabi culture. Uh, they are listening to these Punjabi Psalms when they're going to churches, they're, you know, grandparents, everybody's singing these Psalms. So um, it's, um, it's a good, it's a good feel that, you know, your work could be of benefit to the church, to the people. Yeah, my, and the Urdu version of the book will be available uh, through the local Christian publisher in Pakistan, hopefully this summer. So that's, um, I'm very excited. I mean, I was, it, was, it was good about this particular book, but you know, like how many people in Pakistan could actually have access to this? So I was, I was not super excited about uh, this one. I mean, it was like, you have to order through Amazon, it's expensive. So it was very complicated and I think I I really feel uh, happy now that it will be in the hands of the people um, uh, who are connected to the Psalms and uh, it's part of uh, who they are as Punjabi Christians and this is their heritage. It will be in their hands. They right. can read about it. And um, yeah, so it all brings- yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, I just, uh, I'll tell you right now that it, it just gave me a new appreciation for Zabur and just uh, the word I have on my notepad is unique. It is unique. I mean, I am, uh, you know, my previous job, I, that's what I was, I was doing. I was traveling a lot, going to any given year, I was going to so many different uh, countries and sitting in those countries and listening to believers, which is beautiful, but same tune. Uh, this is, that definitely it shows me too, that Punjabi heritage. And, and, and by that, I mean, it does bring some, uh, level of pride being Pakistani Punjabi um, um, Christian, because it's not always the good thing. Every time when you think about Pakistani Punjabi Christian, you are thinking about untouchable discrimination, mm -hmm. um, have nothing to live on, and poverty and Brooklyn kilns and all that. But this kind of thing brings like, oh, God was doing something in the middle of all of that. To create, so I hope and pray that the book may give that kind of awareness to even Pakistani people, uh, Christian people, that they see it uh, like, wow, we are holding something here so precious. Um, great that uh, we. I'm just so happy. All of that was great. But before we, um, the last thing I'm gonna last thing I'm gonna ask you is to tell me a joke. But before that. If listeners wants to get in touch with you, what are the easiest ways? Yeah, um, I think my email address, I'll, I'll provide uh, my personal email address that maybe if possible, you could provide in the uh, description. Sure. Uh, it's my first name under score last name at hotmail.com. That's the easiest way. The other thing also, I um, try to maintain a, a Facebook page, which is dedicated to ID Shabazz in recognition of his contribution. Um, so that's another way to uh, connect with me uh, through that uh, page, which is dedicated for the Psalms. I'll provide the uh, uh, the link in, which hopefully we could uh, give in description. Great, that will also be included in the episode's description. Now the fun part. 
Um, as I said that, I, I love uh, closing um, our episodes with uh, a joke because uh, uh, sometimes we are dealing with heavy topic. Even in this conversation, we talk about discrimination, persecution. You are teaching a course on persecution. So persecution is real. People are being killed for their faith in Jesus. They are being persecuted. They are they are jobless or whatever is going on. It's real. So heavy topics are part of this podcast. So this is my attempt to lighten the mood when I ask the speaker to tell us a joke. There's a purpose behind that. So please tell us a joke. Sure. It's a very short one. Why do trains like bubble gum? They love to choo-choo. Why? They love to choo-choo. You didn't wait for my why. (laughs) (laughs) Now it's a joke for real. It's a joke for real. (laughs) Because you got to pause. You got to, why do they love? But I love this. Why do the trains love the bubble gum? Why? Because they love to choo-choo. I love it. yeah, that's my, <laughs> so I'm going to share that with my uh, kids. They're going to love it too. Thank you so much for being on the show again. That was uh, Yusuf Sadiq. And uh, thank you to all our listeners. We truly could not do this without you. If you learned something, have a topic suggestion, or would like to leave us feedback, drop us a note at oururbanvoices.com. Be sure to subscribe to the show and leave an honest review wherever you listen to your podcast. Tune in for more honest discussions from diverse voices. You've been listening to Our Urban Voices with Dr. Alphonse Javed, which presents Christian narratives through diverse voices that impact urban ministry. 